welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome to The Common Bridge. Rich's guest today is Hunter Howard. Now, like Rich, Mr. Howard is a highly successful entrepreneur in the healthcare industry space. But unlike Rich, fortunately, Mr. Howard is a COVID-19 patient and very possibly patient zero in Texas. And he uses patient, I think he's reluctant to say survivor, as you'll hear in this podcast, as some of his effects are still uh, lingering. But what Mr. Howard has done during his ongoing recovery is really quite inspiring, and it's made his insight to COVID-19 and its treatment and effects and possibly pass forward. Very interesting and informative. So let's join Rich and Hunter Howard in conversation. Welcome to the Common Bridge. Today we're going to be talking about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, and we have an exceptionally qualified guest with us today. Hunter Howard heads the Global Pandemic Coalition and We're very excited to talk about that. His professional background includes three healthcare companies, some at the leading edge of the changes healthcare has had to make as a result of the coronavirus. And also, very importantly, Hunter has been a COVID patient and he's recovered. And we're very glad about that and hopeful that he will share some of that with us today. So Hunter, welcome to the Common Bridge and just so happy that you've joined us today. Rich, it is great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Great. So what we're going to talk about today is is your experience as a COVID-19 patient, your professional experience, a little bit about what the Global Pandemic Coalition does, and then let's talk about where we are with cures and treatments and preventions and eradication. Because as a world, we're battling enormous social and economic costs of this pandemic. We'll we'll talk a little about what we know about vaccines and antibodies and herd immunity and social protocols. And of course, we're going to get into some of the measurements, some of the statistics out there. And if there's any conclusion today, it's that things are inconclusive. And what was almost accepted as conventional wisdom a couple weeks ago, might be turned on its head tomorrow. That's the nature of this pandemic that we still today are dealing with a situation where there are far more material unknowns than there are knowns. Hunter will also share with us his conversation uh, with World Health Organization Director General David Nabarro. And as always, We'll anticipate some education and perhaps some policy ideas. So, Hunter, welcome. And let's talk, first of all, your personal experience with COVID-19. When did you come down with this dreadful virus? Thanks, Rich. It was was really the the very first of March, and I was at a friend's birthday. I was actually in Aspen, Colorado, at a friend's birthday. Um, Either caught it on the plane coming back, or there was a a group in the uh, in a hotel there that I crossed paths with. So one of those two groups, uh, it happened. But the girl sitting behind me on the plane at home actually had COVID. I later found out through a friend of a friend. So uh, it was a really rough experience. It took me about four days for it to incubate, and then four of the sickest days of my life. And I just the, the pain was, I could barely breathe. I thought I might have to go into an ICU for uh, 
for event help. But I knew at that point we didn't know how bad the vents were, but it was a really rough experience, the sickest that I've ever been. That being said, my body, um, you don't really remember how sick you were. And I just remember it was a terrible experience, but I've, you know, it was something I don't wish on anybody, but you know, something that anybody could get through also from what I experienced. So you were able to get back home to Dallas area. What were some of your symptoms? Did you have the body aches and the, the high fever? And when did you seek treatment? Yeah. So really it was you know, kind of day four or five. I started with a dry cough and a light fever. I would not have thought that much about, but you would just, you were starting to hear things. Otherwise, I, I would not have been concerned. Then the next day, uh, the fever really intensified. And also the um, my breathing really became uh, compromised very quickly for me, where I felt like I had a, a strap wrapped around my chest and just you know, was just having trouble with basic breathing. And it was absolutely incredibly fatigued. The headaches were, were terrible. So I had about three or four days of that. Um, I'm you know, a healthcare professional, so I was able to get good access to people. And they said, just, you need to rest and stay at home. And this is before we knew a lot of the cocktail solutions that helped people out. So I, I missed on that, but it took Tamiflu, took Tylenol, a couple of things. And then, you know, my body, the fever broke. And once it broke, it was really kind of a, I mean, it was a couple hours after taking Tylenol, Tylenol in my opinion, did not solve it. But it was a very memorable, like, well, I, I feel like I just broke the fever. And I thought I was better at that point also. And that was, you know, the bad part was behind me. The fever part was behind me, at least. How are you doing today? Yeah, it's been interesting, you know, because I really thought that it was behind me. And there's just growing kind of uh, understanding that, there's a lot of lingering effects for a lot of people. You know, some people are very lucky. They're asymptomatic. They never feel anything. Uh, some people have a couple of days of a mild flu. And then, you know, part of some Facebook groups of you know, 100,000 people who have you know, three or four months later just lingering effects. My lungs aren't quite back to 100%. I, I call them annoyances, and I hope they're just going to be annoyances, but my lungs aren't 100%. Um, my fatigue uh, sets in pretty regularly. My toes have tingled for nine months, and you don't want to have you, you don't want a WebMD toes tingling and neuropathy uh, issues uh, can take you down some scary paths. I'm hoping that this is just a, uh, you know, a, a slow heal on a lot of these things. Were there others on your Facebook group that have the issues with the numbness in the toes? They do. And they're starting to diagnose certain people with certain autoimmune dis, uh, issues or you know, things like Guillain-Barre, um, things that can lead to paralysis. Uh, so there's a lot oh, of my. downstream negative effects that we don't know yet. You know, it's so early and I feel pretty good, but I don't feel like 100% Hunter Howard though. And you were, um, if you don't mind sharing your demographics, and I, I don't believe you had any underlying major health concerns and you're a pretty healthy guy and not of the at-risk age group. I'm 50. In fact, I just turned 50 and I, yeah, I'm very active, uh, yeah, pretty healthy. I don't, I have low vitamin D. Uh, my testosterone is not optimized and high, but other than that, I was uh, no, no real issues. Well, listen, we're so, sure glad you're feeling better now and really happy that you're here with us. Hunter, your experience as a healthcare professional, I know must have come in handy. Uh, you've had three companies, and could you just give a quick thumbnail on each of those businesses? Sure. So I was yeah, at Fortune 100 company, Dell, doing outsourcing strategy for them, decided to apply that to healthcare when I saw the technology could help improve kind of the medical billing side. So I started a, a large medical billing company, had a large operation in Sri Lanka, sold that to a private equity firm. So I know the back office side well. Then I went into, it was right around the Affordable Care Act getting launched. So started a consultancy to really help understand. I, I love getting wonky. So helping people understand that. 
And then I started a telemedicine company where we provide access to specialists through telemedicine, local testing with pharmacy also, and uh, you know, local testing and then access to the specialists they need. So it was easy for me to find the, the right uh, doctors to talk to about this. And I was amazed right out of the gate is how much, how little anybody knew about this. And this was March. So I was ahead of the curve with what we've learned today, which we're still learning every day. Um, you know, the top pathologists in, D- in Dallas, they would brought me in 14 days later after I had sim- after I had the symptoms I thought I they were the obvious ones and they expected me to have antibodies by then. Not only did I not have antibodies, I still had, um, I still had COVID in my system. So we were learning with them. You know, this, this whole thing has been a big lab experiment that's going to be happening in real time in a very public view. And this, this is typical. It's, it's been confusing. Indeed. And with that professional experience, so you've got the sophistication of international business. Uh, you've got the understanding of the policy aspects of our healthcare system. And actually, and I call our financing methods methods because it's not a system. And then telemedicine. And for those listeners that uh, don't know what telemedicine is, this is where uh, your provider is accessing you through either the internet or dedicated equipment that can view and diagnose and treat you without being in the same location, which of course has accelerated during this pandemic and the resulting stay-at-home orders. So Hunter, with this, now you've got this disease that you've uh, struggled with and continue to, to work through, and you've got this experience from your professional life, and now the global pandemic coalition what is it and what does it do sure so you know we're really uh, bringing together leaders thinkers researchers uh, from six continents to fight COVID-19 I expected you know as I was sitting there in bed that we were going to start seeing a federalized response uh, and even a global response to this uh, global pandemic and didn't quite see what we expected so really reached out to my friends um, my different healthcare leader friends and said we should be you know, leaning into this. We should be putting something together. We should be uh, bringing together the services and solutions that are needed to fight this pandemic. So it's really just a, we're trying to create a big tent and a big megaphone for you know, just the companies that are providing services and solutions. And we're providing advice to the state of Texas, the state of New Jersey. We've been helping Disney with some things. There's a lot of different things we're helping on the testing, the tracing side, but really it's a big tent for anybody who has a uh, COVID relief service or solution and uh, just trying to bring best programs, the best companies uh, to, to help fight this uh, global pandemic. And if my understanding is correct, you've uh, reached over 100 companies, and that represents uh, businesses in six continents. And for those that are interested in knowing more about this, we have posted the website of the Global Pandemic Coalition uh, at richardhelpy.com. I uh, recommend that you look into that. And Hunter, my reading of this is that in the event that we don't get a vaccine or until we get a vaccine, that you've developed a framework about how to look at this pandemic and maybe use that framework as a roadmap toward how we process this as a society. Could you tell us just a little bit about that framework, please? Absolutely. So one of the things that we saw was, you know, we have governors, mayors, and CEOs each being asked to come up with their own strategy for dealing with the global pandemic. And that's frankly above everybody in the world's pay grade. So what we're trying to do is really 
bring together the best in class solutions to help uh, you know, each different uh, element here. So whether it's CEO and bringing together their uh, now on healthcare is very different for every CEO in the world where they have to think about um, healthcare is no longer just buying insurance for the company, but it's actually how do I bring my workplace, my, my employees back to work safely? Um, and so we have a lot of programs that, you know, and some of the programs we've been presenting to Disney on how do you reopen your parks? How do you also do testing uh, for your employees and create employee passports where they do testing every, you know, where they have a, an app where they can every morning say, here is, so have, first we antibody test them and we PCR test them. And every morning they would go through and take a list of, have you experienced any of the symptoms? And also, have you been around any large groups? And a number of things like that. And that just helps us understand, you know, what employees need to go to work, which employees you know, maybe should be considered home, and brings them to a second level of triage. The same thing on the uh, in the community side also, where you know, we're trying to figure out how to reopen uh, our, our communities. And so what we've done, we've done an analysis on uh, all, all, you know, Scott Gottlieb, uh, Andy Slavitt, uh, the Safra Institute, all, all these different, what the recommendations are, reopening safely, the four phases for most of them, boil them all together. And that's where we're helping, you know, city of Dallas, state of Texas on how to reopen sensibly. And really what it comes down to is it's, it's so much of this is blocking and tackling, to be honest with you. And the biggest components of it are testing and contact tracing. Um, and that's the part that, and then also kind of preparing your uh, local hospitals and healthcare systems to be able to take over, to take in anybody that needs to come in. So, you know, we're, you know, what, what are the levels that a hospital can take? Um, and then also making sure that we get people tested and traced immediately, which is really, really the key to this whole thing. The uh, contact tracing that some of the Asian countries have used are probably not going to work here, given the invasive nature. And uh, as I read on your website from the economist Paul Romer, he says that contact tracing is certainly something that we need to be doing. But he said it we've got very unreliable data. Uh, and we don't have enough of it. And at least he says it's a helpful tool for disease surveillance, uh, but, you know, probably not a thing that we can rely on. And, and I think where he's leading is uh, let's make sure that we contain the virus, the things that we do know work, which is social distancing and masking and like. So the testing on the tracing side to me is the blocking and tackling. And also, and really, what is what is tracing? What is surveillance? And those now, those terms are actually you know, pretty worrisome terms. But so if you think about it this way, uh, right now in the U.S., we have a five-day backlog on tests. And so it's taking us five days to get someone in for testing often. Um, and then also you're waiting a number of days before you're getting, um, getting that test back. And then also there's a five-day incubation period. So what has happened in these countries is you have to test immediately. So one thing we failed to do is prepare our communities for immediate testing of anybody who is uh, who has you know the symptoms, or also anybody who's been around and known infected? But uh, you know Wuhan before they reopened up, they did 11 million tests in two days. The entire city before they reopened up. So on the testing side, you have to test immediately, and you have to test robustly. So we, and then the tracing side, you need to be tracing. So an individual gets sick, you need to be contacting every single individual you know has gotten sick within 48 hours. You need to prepare them for a test. And you also need to t- identify who these people are and then also get them into testing 
and then help them isolate so that they're not infecting more people. So uh, really the testing, there's a couple of pieces to it. One is just the phone calls and that's the primary. So that's what Scott Gottlieb has requested to $39 billion of funding to be able to do tracing. He says, this is the key component to keeping, to isolating the, the virus. And so with $39 billion, and it really is just call centers of people calling and saying, who have you been around? And this is how you immediately identify and isolate people who are infected. And what we've done instead, you know, let's look at Arizona, Florida, and Texas. What we've done instead is we're letting 20-year-olds go out, you know, you know, 20 to 40-year-olds go out to bars, be around 50 to 100 people in a bar in a close settings, in a loud environment where they're talking loudly with each other. They're infecting each other. You know, the positivity rate is over 20% now of who is getting uh, the, the test now. And so these individuals, then they go to work the next day. Uh, and then they come back to a bar the next night. And so the amount of people that these people are in contact with, uh, before they, they're pre-symptomatic at this point. And that's when you're also the most contagious, infectious, is when you're pre-symptomatic. And then these young people also often are asymptomatic as well. And so they're never showing any symptoms. So these people are, you know, these groups are going out without masks, uh, into bars, uh, into restaurants, into the workplace. And they're, that is why it's a forest fire of infections right now that we have no control over. And so the two, you know, the blocking and tackling pieces that, you know, this is, we all, we all sacrificed, you know, where we stayed in for a couple of months. And then what should have happened during that time, you prepare the healthcare system to control, to be able to accept anybody in their beds. And then also, how do you do immediate rapid testing of anybody so we can do that as soon as you have a symptom or as soon as someone who's been around, someone who's been affected, you get them in for testing and you understand, do we need to isolate them? And then the tracing part, let me go into some of the details with tracing. We, we have these tracing programs around the world going on right now. We have uh, a, a manufacturing plant in India where we do proximity tracing and they have five different cohorts of workers. So these individuals are coming in and if one person in your cohort gets sick, that cohort then has to all get tested. The other four cohorts are still working. And we know through proximity tracing who in your cohort you have been around. So it just helps to understand. And this is the same tool has been used in South Korea, same tools in Singapore. That is not, you know, proximity tracing in the community is not something that's going to be readily available here. But on the tracing side, if you can get to everybody within 48 hours that has been infected, find out everybody that they've been in contact with in the last five days when they've been in the pre-symptomatic, most infectious uh, stage, and then tell those people you need to isolate until we can confirm that you don't have it. That is how you control this virus. And that's, and that's not, to me, that's not that invasive. It's uh, the invasive part is the, now another, you know, another tool that we have. Yeah, well, a, the invasive part would yeah. be the, like uh, South Koreans with a, everyone has a wristband on that uh, broadcast your location and your temperature. Um, right. or, you know, invasive would be Singapore where they have a camera outside your apartment. And the other thing that I think people need to understand is that when the term surveillance is used, this does not mean surveillance of individuals or populations. It means surveilling the disease spread and trying to make sense of the data. And to your point in, uh, Michigan, just the press conference that was just held, we're recording this on Thursday, the uh, 9th of July, uh, the governor said that 20% of the new cases um, are the 20 to 34 year olds. So the disease is behaving differently based on the patient cohort. And one of those divisions clearly is age. And as we try to figure out who to test, what's occurring is first of, 
of all, people, of course, with symptoms are getting tested. People coming in for other medical issues, an illness, a pregnancy, what have you, are getting tested. The healthcare workforce is getting surveilled. And then there are just people that want to get tested, like I'm going to go visit my grandparents and I want to get tested to make sure that I don't have the virus. And we used to call those the worried well. And now it's a, a more precautionary. But also in terms of uh, how states are doing the data, they're all different. And we know that there's co-mingling going on of actual results from diagnostic tests and also with antibody testing and all of that being lumped into positive. And again, coming back to the only thing that is conclusive is that things are inconclusive. Look, we know that there's been reports about the disease spreading. And one of those places is your state in Texas. What is going on in the state of Texas? You know, we, everybody, everybody around the world has been sacrificing and you know, different, different areas of the world are sacrificing much differently. And when you are staying in and when your businesses are, are shut down, you feel like you're sacrificing a lot. We did not sacrifice as aggressively. And then when, when we did reopen, we immediately reopened up the bars and the restaurants. And we went to 75% and to 100% um, before the phase reopening that was recommended by you know, really all, all the best uh, policy experts. And so um, you know, right now in Texas, we are, I think, 4.8 times higher hospitalization rate than we were a month ago uh, right now. And so people were going out um, in, you know, really it was, it was the bar scene. And it's the, you know, obviously the protest did not help, but it's, um, you know, people going out in the bar scene and people are, you know, Texans are very unique in that they, you know, very patriotic about, you know, about, about their rights and, uh, and they don't want to wear masks. And so, you know, that's, that's what's making it skyrocket in, in Texas right now. And even with that, surge as of today or as of last night the death rate for cases in texas these are the confirmed cases and confirmed deaths is 1.29 percent whereas contrast that in new york city over 10 percent that's the best news and the news on that and this is this is so important we are learning every single day on this and so that's you know what happened in new york where one is they were over you know the system could not handle all the people that were coming in uh, to their hospitals and they're putting too many people on vents. There's so many things that we have learned, whether it be, you know, vents is a uh, last resort and not for everybody. Uh, the therapeutics uh, that are working right now, whether it be the plasma treatments, uh, dexamethasone, the steroid, very common steroid has been very, very effective. Remdesivir has been a very effective, uh, uh, you know, drip um, uh, program also, you know, for people at very late stages. So. There's so many different things that we're doing that are helping out. And so that's, that's the best news. It looks like it's becoming more infectious. It, it, it appears that it's becoming much more infectious, but we're, the case fatality uh, rate is, is decreasing just because we're not making, we're learning how to, to handle this better. Indeed, if uh, you look at the five states that had the worst outbreaks, New York, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey, 43% of the deaths are in nursing homes or related to nursing homes. Those five states represent 17% of the population of the United States, yet they represent 26% of the cases 
and almost half of the deaths. Whereas you look at the states in the news lately, at the front end of the curve now, because these numbers could look very different a few months from now, but Texas, Florida, Arizona, California combined represent 30% of the population of the United States, so substantially greater than those first five states, yet they have about the same percentage of cases in the United States. There's really not a statistical difference. And the death rate, instead of 48% of the deaths, is 11%. So I think it does show that we're learning. And I think your point about ventilators is well taken, that that seemed to be the critical path. Uh, The blood gases were showing that patients should be put on a vent, although they were sitting upright and speaking. And they found that four out of the five people put on vents perished. And thank God they didn't put you on a vent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And and so we're learning. And the the discharges and the requirements in the nursing homes uh, that we saw in New York, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey, that they were still looking around for a policy solution. But across the country, you know, what we've seen now is the rise in the deaths at home. There's some new reporting out of Houston uh, as of this morning about deaths at home, and they are either COVID deaths or COVID-related or fear of going to a healthcare facility because of getting COVID. So that's a policy that is still in the air about what the right thing to do is. And I, and I guess the death rate coming down also could just be that younger people are getting this and younger people typically are going to be more healthy. Yeah, to me, the younger people are almost like kindling. And so they're like the brush fire. So the brush fire is, is burning really intensely right now. And, and these are groups that many of them are going to be asymptomatic. They're not going to feel it. They're going to be going out. They're going to be spreading it. Um, and then all of a sudden, when it gets so intense and there's so there's you know there's such a high positivity rate of the test right now, that's when you have no control over it, and that's when all of a sudden you cannot control your mother or your father or your uncle, or you can't control your 60 year old school teacher you know who's a kindergarten teacher, uh, and and so that's that's where so much of the fear is that we have not been able to control the transmissions because really the transmission is based on two things that you know each stage of the reopening should be you know a, a couple of the key things are. Get your healthcare system uh, set up, but also, do you have less than five percent positivity in the uh, in the, uh, the testing rate of people who have it? And also, you need fourteen days of trailing transmissions. And so that was, you know, these are all the guidelines from the top policymakers. Then you can reopen up once you have that under control. And um, you know, we, we took a different approach here. You know, we wanted to open up, and and these are the reasons why we may not have football in the fall. This is the reasons why you might not be going to hockey games. Our kids might not be in schools. We did not, you know, we were more concerned with what are the essential workers and make it and, and things like that than we were with let's have a you know a national federal program and let's kind of lock these areas down that are that have issues and let's get every you know, and do things in a slow, methodical manner. I think the statistics the statistics support what you're saying because as the the kindling theory supported because so many of the cases that resulted in severe outcomes and death were caught in the home. And we know today that just like a group of people going to an indoor bar and not having their masks on and speaking loudly and being there for a prolonged period of time, the viral load transmitted will infect others. 
they go home and they're living in a home and constantly circulating air with an at-risk person, you know, an old, a parent, a grandparent, a, you know, someone that has that. So I can see where that kindling theory goes up. But yeah, Hunter, you've, you've, I thought, made an excellent point that this is a worldwide problem and above the pay grade. You had an opportunity to have a conversation with World Health Organization Director General David Navarro. What are you allowed to tell us about that? Yeah, so we had a, uh, a podcast that we did to a private group of uh, healthcare and uh, well, CEOs around the world. And, and David's an amazing guy, guy. He's been through this so many times. So, you know, he's been through the Ebola and SARS and all this. And so he was very chilling. And, it, you know, he's a charming old English guy who was in, who was able to deliver the scariest uh, commentary in a charming old uh, English way. But, you know, he thinks that we are best case scenario, two and a half years from a vaccine. Um, you know, and also if we do get a vaccine, a vaccine doesn't mean, you know, there's, you know the, the flu vaccine is 40% effective, whereas, you know, a measles vaccine is 97%. So we're much more likely to have a flu type of vaccine than we would, uh, you know, a measles vaccine. Um, he, he just, he, he's, we, we talked a lot about kind of the, you know, Brazil and Pakistan and India. And so there's so many countries around the world that are not set up their healthcare systems to deal with this. And you really think about kind of social inequities in so many of these countries that they are, um, you know, in some places it's an inconvenience where your lifestyle has been changed. Uh, if you're in Panama and you are allowed to leave your home in a flavella type environment for one hour a day, uh, it is, and, and beyond month four of that, that is a dramatically different situation. But the second that they, you know, and, and right now it's running rapidly through some of these countries, they have to, you know, so as we look at this as maybe a hoaxer, no, this is not a hoax. I mean, in these countries, these countries are much more draconian lockdowns than we have been on. Uh, and, you know, these flavellas and these, you know, three generations of family living together in a very small place, once it starts ripping through those small villages and flavellas, their healthcare system can't handle it. So he was, um, it was a very dour, uh, very conversation, dour conversation of where this is going. And it doesn't look like it's waves. It looks like this is happening where it's mutating um, and it's becoming more infectious, maybe not more, you know, deadlier. And the good news about these, when they do mutate is they become more infectious often, but then the people, the, the spreaders who are dying are dying off with the most severe cases. And then the younger people that are spreading it are spreading it with, less infectious cases. So there's a lot of, you know, there's absolutely some theory that this will slow down over time, but it's it's going to take some time. If there were a better climate for communication, I think people would understand that we only know what we know at a certain period of time and that that understanding may change. Uh, that doesn't mean you were trying to hoax me when you told me what you told me a month ago. Uh, which may be completely different. Like, you know, by, by way of example, you and I were chatting yesterday about hydroxychloroquine and that, you know, it was, oh, this is going to be preventive and a therapeutic. Remember, our doctors were taking it. And then it was, wait a minute, the, it's an anti-malarial drug. It's really not going to be effective and it could hurt your heart. Nobody take it. Well, then two <laughs> days ago, Henry Ford Health System comes out and says, well, you know, now we've got something that kind of looks like it shortens the stay. And, you know, I, if I could just put you on the spot for a second, is that you said, you know, when you had it, had the disease, you said if they would have offered you hydroxychloroquine, you probably would have taken it. But now, based on what you know today, you wouldn't. 
Fair enough. Absolutely. I was talking to emergency room doctors in New York that were um, prescribing it pretty liberally back then, and they thought it was having you know pretty good results. Uh, so I absolutely would have taken it if I had gotten sick a week or two later once I got that information. Now I probably wouldn't. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that's you know, become clear is that we're moving so quickly and we're learning every day. And because we're learning every day, it gives different people with you know positions to cherry pick information that supports you know their thesis or their side. That's so easy to do. The data isn't perfect. The information isn't perfect. We are one big lab experiment where the smartest doctors in the world are learning something new every day. So, um, so hope you know we are an open lab experiment happening in real time, and we're learning. And so, uh, I think rather than kind of focusing on what number might be wrong or how does that support your cause, you know, just it, just be respectful of this is a, a really complicated time where we're learning every day. And um, I, I look, I think that's well said that we are one big lab experiment. And uh, let's just touch briefly on herd immunity and or a vaccine and that vaccines, I think, are a longer way off in that you know, we really don't know yet how this virus behaves. We don't know how effective antibodies are. We don't know how long they last. And, you know, vaccine basically just stimulates your antibodies. So that seems like it's going to be a tough target. And then herd immunity, you know, frankly, from all the data we're looking at lately, doesn't look that promising. Any commentary on either you know, vaccine or herd immunity as a exit strategy from this thing? Yeah, herd immunity is really interesting. We, we've been putting a lot of work into that and we've got a, um, we actually come up with a global herd immunity testing program where we've got a QR coded uh, app that you can upload the information from any antibody test in the world. And we've got one partner that's producing 1 million uh, highly sensitive, highly accurate uh, tests per day that we're in contact with some people about doing it in an international program where it's a disposable you know, uh, test that you take a picture of the results afterwards, it comes back into our database. So there's, it's really important on the surveillance side to start understanding how this is spreading, how much of the population has it. Um, and then also a lot of information we're able to get, gather on reinfection rates and comorbidities and different people that are having different types of symptoms. So it's a really important kind of platform for us. But right now we might have, you know, you need to get to 60 or 70% uh, you know, infected before the herd immunity really is, is, is strong enough. So we're a long ways from days. It's really kind of hopefully not the approach we're gonna take is relying on herd immunity, but understanding herd immunity is an incredibly important part uh, to this. So, you know, what, what are we looking at then? We're looking at, you know, the masks. The masks work, you know, the masks, uh, they, help, they help slow down the, the um, transmission. Uh, the back to the contact tracing helps you identify and isolate those that are they're ill and you know, nobody wants to be isolated but if that's going to help us you know keep our teachers uh, healthy and keep them in schools by keeping a 24 year old you know at home for the two weeks that he might be infected you know that's a really interesting conversation we need to start having right now um the hygiene side uh you know it looks like a lot of states are going to maybe take a step back on the reopening. And I think there's going to be really difficult conversations on what do we need to do right now to sacrifice to make sure we can get our kids back in school, we can reopen our economy in a, in a sensible way. And then waiting on the vaccine that might be two and a half years away. But we we are getting better at the case fatality rates. And that's the, you know, the most promising that we're getting better at that. It's you know, infections are burning wildly right now. But, you know, it's not just about 
It's not just about mortalities, though. You know, we're learning so much about the longer term effects of, you know, on your lung. You know, let's say you have this four months later, you know, lung issues, heart issues, neurological issues. You know, my toes are tingling. What does that mean? Uh, maybe it's annoyance for the rest of my life. Maybe it goes away next week. We don't know any of this. So it's just there's so much more to this than just counting hospital beds, mortality rates, infection rates. And it's uh, it's complex, uncharted territory. Indeed. And, and this is where those people that we have elected or have been appointed trying to come up with the right policy solutions. You know, we've had travel bans put on, travel bans put off. We've had stay-at-home orders put in place, uh, revised, lifted. It is uncharted territory. Hunter, this has been a great conversation. We could likely go on for hours. Uh, but as we wrap up, what didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have discussed? Yeah, I think we had some really tough conversations. Um, and hopefully we're kind of open to to understanding how do we put this behind us? How do we reopen our economy safely? How do we reopen our schools? And I think there's some tough sacrifices that need to be made. And uh, that's... It, would, would those, let me ask, ask you this. Would those sacrifices include not going out into mass protests in that the connection, but you know, you mentioned that the protests and rallies in Houston, you know, probably couldn't be ignored. Um, yet I read today a headline that said Tulsa has an outbreak somehow out of a poorly attended rally. Both could be true. Both could be false. And that New York City's mayor has said that the contact tracing is not going to allow asking if you've been to a rally or a protest. Hmm. Wow. You know, so I mean, if we're, if, I think we have to drop all those value measures. So people are going to value whether they go to a protest or a rally differently. We need to yeah. accept that. But also, we need to make people aware if there is a consequence. You know, if it's perfectly fine that we're all out there with masks, great. That's a low risk. But these are the, I mean, these are real trade offs that we have to think about. They really are real trade offs. I mean, we, you know, we're at a point right now where you know, I think, I don't think in March we expected to have eight to 10 days of test results waiting time for so many people or you know, 60,000 cases a day or a thousand deaths per day or, you know, 10% positivity rate. Um, we're just, yeah, that's. Right. We didn't know what we didn't know at that, that point. What, what policy from a policy perspective or from actions, what would be the best policies today and what would be maybe some of the worst? And then in any actions or actions that you'd recommend people might take, just your closing thoughts, if you could kind of wrap that up. And I know that our listeners are really going to value what you've shared here today. And I encourage everyone to go to the Global Pandemic Coalition website. This is ever evolving. It's a uh, initiative of very passionate and very knowledgeable people and very comprehensive. And I think we can bring down some of the noise that we get from the reporting industry if people embrace what Hunter Howard has led. But Hunter, any closing thoughts on policies or actions, pro or con, that you might recommend? Yeah, I'll make two points. Yeah, what is it on the transmissions? Are, are not transmissions, as you know, kind of that is how many people you're infecting are just out of absolute control. And so we need to do a better job of Testing, tracing, hygiene, mask wearing, um, and we might have to kind of slow down some of the uh, the reopenings uh, while we get this in control in, in certain markets. So that's that's one thing is we've got to control transmissions. The other part is we are really kind of excited. The enthusiasm for the Global Pandemic Coalition of these you know, 
100 plus companies around six continents. Uh, we're opening up the COVID exchange. It's a marketplace that's going to open up in about a week, probably the end of next week. And it's all the company's services and solutions, you know, from <clears throat> testing to uh to workplace management, to PPE, to you know all these all these different uh, things. So it's going to be COVID dot exchange. It's going to be a marketplace we're going to have. It's going to be a really important uh, component to just everything we're doing. We're just trying to stitch together a global and federal program of all the different solutions that are needed to help get this under control and help our CEOs, our mayors, our governors um, with the best in class solutions. So we're just you know, we are excited. We are building this a really kind of passionate. Uh, leaders in our communities around the world who are you know, just working together to, you know, to fight the spread of COVID. We've been visiting this morning with Hunter Howard of the Global Pandemic Coalition. We hope everybody will join in policy discussions and also encourage everyone to ask those that we've elected to serve us to quit fighting each other on a partisan basis and pay attention to the very real issues of the day and reflect more of what Hunter Howard has said. Let's go find solutions based on real data. Let's be forgiving with each other about what we know and what we don't know. And let's consume news programming that actually is news and not designed to inflame us. This is Rich Helpy on The Common Bridge. Thank you, everybody, and so long. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.